Hi, you guys, and welcome to Into the Bullpen. My name is Casey Gray, and today I'm going to tell you guys a story about a case from 2002 and 2003 that has recently been in the news again. I promise you, you know the story, but I guarantee you don't know the details like you think you do. This is the disappearance and murder of Lacey Peterson. Police immediately take this phone call seriously. That's not always the case in missing person calls, but they do take this seriously from the get-go, and they head over to Lacey Peterson's house. She lives on 523 Cavena Avenue. You will hear that a lot in this episode. So, um, per their protocol, they gotta talk to her husband. His name is Scott Peterson. He tells police that he was fishing at the time at the Berkeley Marina, which is the bay. And they need a story for the day. His story goes something like this. Lacey wakes up before him. She has to eat right away when she wakes up or she'll, she'll get sick. She's eight months pregnant. She has a bowl of cereal. Scott wakes up later on, probably about eight, he estimates, and he says he showers. And then they're watching Lacey's favorite show, which was Martha Stewart. The investigator asks Scott if he can recall anything about the episode. And Scott says they were making, quote, cookies of some sort. They were talking about what to do with meringue. The detective questioning Scott, Detective Alan Brocchini, asks when Scott decides to go fishing. Scott says he originally planned on going golfing that day and had told multiple people he would be going golfing, but he decided the morning of that it was too cold and that he wanted to go fishing instead. So Scott's father-in-law, as you heard, he stated that in his 911 call. And you also recall that he said that the dog came back without Lacey. Now, when detectives talk to the woman who actually found the dog, Her story is this. She was getting ready to run errands and she sees the Peterson's dog, Mackenzie, in their front lawn, just standing there with his leash on and no one else is nearby. So she goes to put the dog in the backyard fence, which is where the dog usually stays during the day. She notices that the dog's leash is muddy. There's long grass clippings stuck to it. She puts the dog in the fence. She goes about her errands. And then when police ask her to pinpoint what part of the day or make a time estimate, she says, that it would have been about 10, 18 a.m. that she had put the dog back in the fence. She would later testify that she didn't notice anything out of the ordinary this day, besides the dog being out of the fence, of course, and didn't hear anything unusual the night before. So I did a little research just for the sake of a full picture here, and the temperature in Modesto that morning was between 40 and 47 degrees. Scott continues in his interview and says that Lacey was planning on finishing up her cleaning. She was doing some mopping and then she was going to take the dog for a walk at the park. And then she was going to go get some items she needed for a family Christmas breakfast the next morning before making gingerbread cookies that evening. Detective Brocchini asks Scott if he remembers what Lacey was wearing. Scott says, yeah, she was wearing black pants and a white long sleeve t-shirt. And then she usually wears these white tennis shoes. But, okay, so for me, this was, like, my first red flag. Um, Scott's eight-month pregnant wife is going to go for a walk with the dog by herself. It's 45 degrees out, and it's too cold for Scott to go golfing. He's going to be out on the water with nothing to protect him from the wind. That's his story. That's his story. 
I live in Minnesota and I wouldn't go outside in 45 degree weather without a sweatshirt, but I don't know, maybe she's warm blooded. So uh, Rokini then asks if those white shoes were home when Scott got there and Scott says no, they weren't, but he didn't really look much further than where she usually leaves them, which is by the door. So Rokini continues by asking at what time Scott left that morning and he doesn't really have a definitive answer. He says it was probably about 9.30 and then he drove to his warehouse, which is also his office. Scott works as a fertilizer salesman. So his warehouse is actually only 3.3 miles from his house on Kavena Ave. And according to my maps, it's about a 10 minute drive. So while he's there, he says he puts together a woodworking tool that he bought off of eBay for some projects at home. He says he checks his email. He sent a holiday greeting to his boss through an email, and then he hooked up his boat and, quote, went. While Scott was at his warehouse, he also received a fax at some point, but he cannot pinpoint exactly when he grabbed it. Scott was also unable to say when exactly he left his warehouse, but he worked backwards from when he arrived at the Berkeley Marina, which when he got there, he got a receipt for a fishing pass. There's like an automated machine for purchasing fishing passes at this marina, and he worked backwards with the help of Detective Brocchini to determine he most likely left his warehouse about 1130, but he could not say for sure. It was about an hour and a half drive from Scott's warehouse to the Berkeley Marina. He says he doesn't really know what he was fishing for. Quote, a lot of the reason I went there was just to get the boat in the water to see, you know. Scott details where exactly he drove his boat in the bay. He says he went a couple miles out, found a little island, which he details is dirty. There's trash everywhere. It's graffiti. There's broken piers. And he just figures that the shallow area around it would be a good spot to fish. But the bay is salt water, and Scott doesn't have tackle for salt water. I'll talk more about that later. So Scott is still continuing with... Brokini, and he talks about how he didn't fish for long, maybe an hour and a half, before he decided it was probably time for him to go. He says some maintenance guys got a good laugh of him trying to get his boat hooked back up to the truck, and then he heads home. This information is later corroborated as well. Brokini asks if he has to get gas either way. Scott says, yeah, he got gas on his way home at a Chevron in Livermore, but he didn't get a receipt he paid with his credit card. He says it was at this time that he called Lacey to say he was leaving the marina, and he left a sort of high, sweetie voicemail. Take a listen. Hey, beautiful. I just left a message at home. Uh, 2.15. I live in Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Villa Farms to get that basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and uh, go on out there. I'll see you in a bit. We love you. Bye. This voicemail is timestamped at 2.16 p.m. He then says he goes to his warehouse, drops off his boat, and heads home. Brokini asks Scott what he was wearing at the time, and Scott explains he was wearing blue jeans, a blue t-shirt, and had some Timberline shoes on. He explains he didn't have a jacket on when he left the house, but he got a green pullover from his warehouse and had a camo jacket on the boat along with a tan hat. So Scott backs into his driveway, this is usual. He goes in from what most people would consider the back door. Saw Mackenzie in the backyard, the dog still had the leash on. Scott thought that was kind of odd, he just took it off, put it on the picnic table. He dumped out the water from the bucket Lacey used to mop that morning because the cat kept messing with it. He dumped the water out and just set the bucket right back next to the door. 
He gets inside the house, he throws his clothes into the washer, he's calling for Lazy, doesn't get a response, but at this point, he's not really too concerned, he just assumes that she's at her mom's. He grabbed a pizza from the fridge, and he even talked about this pizza in the interview with Brokini. Brokini had asked whether or not Scott stopped for lunch, and he says no, he was waiting on pizza when he got home. So Scott showers, and after a shower, he checks the messages on the home phone, he says he finds his message, and he also finds a message from Ron, Lacey's stepdad, asking for them to bring whipped cream when they come over. Lacey and Scott were supposed to go over to Lacey's mom's house around 6 or 6.30 p.m. for dinner. So this call from Ron came after Scott's, which was concerning for Scott because that means that Lacey's not at her mom's. Scott says he immediately called Lacey's mom, Sharon, who said she hadn't even heard from Lacey all day. Scott decides to call two of Lacey's closest friends to see if she is with them. They say, no, she's not. They haven't heard from her all day. Then Scott tells Brokini he got the phone book out to call hospitals. Now, I could not find this verified anywhere. The phone book was out, but according to a Reddit thread, it was open to a page about a defense lawyer, not hospitals. So anyways, Sharon ended up calling Scott back and said that they're going to call the police and for Scott to go check with the neighbors. She asked him to check the park and Scott does. He goes He goes to the neighbor's house. Um, the neighbor that I actually found, Mackenzie, was gone at this point. So he just left a note there, but he went and checked with all the other neighbors. None of them had seen Lacey. So he comes back home after talking to the neighbors and he gives Sharon a call. And then they all decide to go meet at the park to go look there. Police also meet them there. Rokini then asks if Scott can recall anything unusual he may have seen at home. Scott says, not really, like the Christmas lights are plugged in, back doors are unlocked, and the dog still had the leash on. Scott is asked to take a polygraph on the 24th, which initially he says, yeah, I'll do it, but his father tells Scott not to go through with it, and so Scott does not end up taking a polygraph. At some point on December 24th, Detective Rokini and another detective go to the warehouse, but no formal search is conducted. Lacey's purse and keys were later found inside of the house. At trial, according to one of those friends that, of Lacey's that Scott t contacted, the night of the 24th, Scott went up to her, held up his hands, and said, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if they find blood on my truck because I cut my hands all the time. It is also noted by police that Scott had a scuff on his knuckle. According to trial testimony, police officers reached both the house and the park about 6.15 p.m., so only 30 minutes after... Um, the initial 911 call. A search of the park was conducted throughout the night. There were officers on foot. They had dogs out. A helicopter was flown over the park with one of those devices used to detect humans. No person or body was found during the hour and 15 to hour and 20 minute aerial helicopter search. So Scott's interview with police is from 12.01 to 1 a.m. Uh, it would be Christmas day. Later that morning around 10.30, the Modesto PD issue a news release this is the first of many about Lacey Peterson. Now, for me, the first thing that I noticed in this news release is that the police department states it was Scott who actually made the 911 call, but it was actually Lacey's stepfather. I don't know many instances where police get information wrong on a news release. Um, I guess it, some would consider it to be like a minute detail, but for me, everything of importance is in the details. So I found that super odd. I, that was so weird to me.
the second thing that I found odd about this news release was that the police actually state where Scott was at the time of her disappearance. Now, Scott's not even a suspect at this point, but I still think that it's weird that they're like, hey, this is where her husband was when she disappeared. Because for me, I guess if I had kidnapped Lacey, and like, I'm not saying that she was kidnapped by somebody else, and I'm not saying whether or not Scott is guilty, I'm just saying if I had kidnapped this woman, and the police said, her husband was here at the time of her disappearance. To me, if I took her, I'd be like, okay, that's where I'm gonna drop the body because they're gonna think that it was him. <laughs> Maybe I'm just too far off on that. But anyways, I wanna talk about the park before I continue. This was the park that they searched when they made the 911 call. And this park is not unfamiliar to Lacey. She walked her dog here just about every single day. She had this, there was this little dirt path in the park that she frequented. And when I did the research for this case, I came across an email from Lacey Peterson to the park's maintenance superintendent. Lacey emailed this man twice in the three months leading up to her disappearance about a dirt path that she walked on. Uh, the dates of these were September 5th and October 31st. She was asking park maintenance to do some vegetation trimming for visibility, clean up trash, and install a streetlight in the area. These things were never done. So at this point, the community is rallying together. People are making missing posters. Media crews are stationed outside of the house. People are searching the park and nearby for Lacey. Volunteers make pins and they take over the, the tip line to free the police for searches. Everybody is looking for Lacey. On December 26, 2002, around 4.30 p.m., the Peterson's neighbor, um, they live right across, but like slightly to the right. Um, they returned home from a trip to see family for the holidays, and they discovered that their home had been burglarized while they were away. According to their insurance claim on this theft, the family had an estimated two grand's worth of items taken. Some of these items included a bunch of tools, some knives, and a Louis Vuitton bag. A woman who lives down the street had been driving by this house on December 24th around 11.40 a.m. And as soon as she hears that this house was burglarized, she realizes what she saw and she phones into the tip line to let them know that she was a witness. She says that she had noticed this van parked at the house that was burglarized, which was 516 Cavena. And she remembered this van because there were three dark-skinned, but not African-American, men who had all turned and looked at her. In the A&E documentary, she describes them as giving her the stink eye. There are some issues in this whole burglary situation. For one, the police originally try to claim that this burglary had to have happened on the 26th or 27th, despite two things. One of them the, being the media is camped out right across the street. And the second one is the fact that they had a witness. Now, eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable, but she says she distinctly remembers it because when they turned and looked at her and gave her the stink eye, she thought that it was super weird. But she, I mean, she didn't know that they were burglarizing the house. In the a &E documentary, they actually interviewed the man, one of the men responsible for this theft. And he says that they had um, used the family's dolly to wheel their safe out and they set it in the front lawn as they loaded it up into their van. So this whole safe is sitting outside in the front lawn <laughs> And they think that this happened when the media was present? Sorry, no. Also occurring on December 26th, the police asked Scott if they can conduct a search of the home. Now, I couldn't find what time they asked him, but Scott didn't say no. He reached out to an attorney instead. Um, unfortunately, he was not contacted back by the attorney in time before the police showed up with their warrant and began their search, which was on the 26th. On the 27th, between 2.45 and 3 p.m., a search was conducted at Scott's warehouse as well. 
During these searches, police seize both Scott's truck and his fishing boat, and sure enough, some of Scott's blood is found inside the cab of his truck. Also found in Scott's truck was a gun in his glove box. There was a 22 caliber. Now I want to read you a statistic from the Violence Policy Center. A study conducted in 2001 found that women physically abused by a current or former intimate partner found a five-fold increased risk of the partner murdering the woman when the partner owned a gun. Now I'm not necessarily saying that um, Lacey was the victim of domestic violence. However, there is that connection it is something to think about. In the days following Lacey's disappearance, it is reported that Scott added, some sources say two, but some say three, channels of pornography to his TV service. On December 28, 2002, the Modesto PD issues another news release expanding their search. They are searching by helicopter in rural areas and announced the Contra Costa County search and rescue team did a search of the Berkeley Marina, but quote, didn't find anything conclusive. On December 29th, MPD issues another news release this one says none of the searches have come up with anything and nothing has been found that steers the investigators in any particular direction. Volunteers have utilized space in the Red Lion Hotel for that tip line that they took over and they are also using this space to make posters and pins. Most of the tips at this point are sightings of Lacey. In trial testimony, however, we find out that not many of these tips seem to be followed up on by police. It is also reported that Detective Brocchini later admits to calling this tip line himself with fake tips to see if the family would pass along the tips to police. They did pass along these messages. On December 30th, 2002, the Modesto Police Department investigators get a call from a woman by the name of Amber Fry. So Amber Fry is a 28-year-old single mother who works as a massage therapist in Modesto. They find out from Amber that she had been in a romantic relationship with Scott Peterson since November 20th. Detectives had asked Scott during the investigation if him and Lacey had had any marital problems and Scott said, no, there are no issues in our marriage. So police are instantly suspicious of Scott. Amber agrees to become an informant for the police and agrees to record all her phone conversations with Scott. Investigators take her to Radio Shack and they get her the equipment she needs to record the calls. Amber tells the police a few interesting things. She says that when she met Scott, he originally told her that he was single. On December 9th, 2002, not much later after he told her he was single, he says, oh, actually, I do have a wife, but, quote, I lost her. She then tells investigators that Scott got really emotional after that and told her that this will be his first holiday season without his wife. I also want to point out that Scott and Amber had not been on many dates at this point, maybe only four or five dates prior to this, but one of the occasions that they were together was December 14th, 2002 at a Christmas party. Police later find out that Lacey was at a different party alone that night. Police also find out that Scott had lied to Amber and told her that he was being sent to Europe for a business trip and he wouldn't be back until February. Once this information comes out to the media in late January and early February, Scott is basically crucified for it. It really is suspicious though that two weeks before Lacey goes missing, Scott tells his mistress, oh, this is my first holiday season without my wife. And then it is that garnered a ton of media attention. On December 31st, 2002, a news release is issued. This one, like most before it, is asking for the public's help. Hey, if you can lend a hand, volunteers are needed for the tip line. If you can hand out flyers or pins, like whatever you can do to help. 
They then say, quote, as we continue to profile Lacey's background, gather witness statements, recognize her close relationship with family and friends, investigate the circumstances of her disappearance, and in view of the timing with the holiday season, it is becoming more apparent that her disappearance is the result of foul play. As of December 31st, the MPD started treating Lacey's case as foul play. There is also a vigil held for Lacey on December 31st, and at this vigil, Scott is seen smiling and laughing. I know I'm only like halfway into this episode, but if you head to our Facebook page, Into the Bullpen Podcast, I will post pictures as well as my sources. I will be sure to include this picture of Scott from the vigil. You have to take a look at it. It really is odd. Scott also calls Amber this night. He tells her that he is celebrating New Year's Eve at the Eiffel Tower and there's a lot of people and there's fireworks. Of course, he doesn't know that Amber has already gone to police. Take a listen. I can hear you. Hey. Yes. Okay, hey, I'm back. Okay, I'm like, stay still or something. I know, I'm not making it work. How's your, how was your new year? What's that? How was your new year? It's good. I'm just, uh, I want to see the bar now. I came out of the Alley. Park Alley. Is that nice? Yeah, it is. I think it's very good. So, pretty awesome. Fireworks there. The Eiffel Tower. The people all playing weird pop songs. Uh-huh. It's pretty funny. So try and convince me that that's not flirty. Scott's I know, right? Come on, please. You're supposed to be mourning your wife who's missing? Um, anyways, January 2nd, 2003, the MPD issue another news release. This time they're asking for the public's help in corroborating Scott's alibi, which was the Berkeley Marina. Just a reminder that at this point, they do already have the receipt that Scott provided them with, which is from his day pass for fishing. Now, I don't think it's odd that they're asking for the public's help, but I do think that it's important to note that he had already provided that receipt at this point. January 3rd, 2003, the Modesto police arrest the suspects for the home burglary that occurred just across the street from the Petersons. Petersons lived at 523 Cavena, and the Medinas, which is the family whose house was burglarized, lived at 516, so they were right across from each other. A news release from January 3rd, 2003 at 5 p.m. states that two individuals were arrested, a Stephen Wayne Todd, 33, and a Donald Glenn Pierce, 44. According to reports, when police were questioning these men, without being prompted, they said, I didn't have anything to do with that pregnant lady. From my perspective, and again, I'm not a police officer, but the witness said she saw three men, and she distinctly remembered it. And then only two were arrested, so my question is, where is that third man? And immediately they mention Lacey. That's kind of odd, but I don't think, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think it's too strange that they mentioned her because she was all over the news. Like the world was captivated by this case. People were invested. Reporters in the media were outside the Peterson home basically 24 seven. So I don't, I don't think it's odd that they knew about her, but I do wonder if there was a third person involved in the theft who could also know something about Lacey. So according to this news release, quote, Modesto police needed to rule out or link any connection to the burglary with the disappearance of Lacey. Todd and Pierce have both cooperated fully in the burglary investigation, and police do not have any reason to believe they are connected to the disappearance of Lacey Peterson. So I also want to go into detail at this point. Like, the media is absolutely nuts over this case. I've touched on it here and there, but... 
they are camped out in front of the Peterson's house almost 24 seven and words do not do it justice. I really recommend watching the a &E documentary on this case as well as doing your own research because the media frenzy surrounding this case is insane. The media tried to link Scott to multiple missing women in the area. I think they tried to link Scott Peterson to the disappearance of Elizabeth Smart. And then when there weren't any links, instead of just like issuing an apology or saying, hey, we were wrong, they just kind of moved on and like tried to forget about what they had already reported on. So reporters were ripping him apart and it is so hard to do it justice. This case had even gone global. I think a part of the documentary, they're talking about how the war in Iraq had just started and people in Iraq are tuning in to news coverage for the Lacey Peterson case. You guys, that is bizarre. Then on January 5th, 2003, police surveilling Scott follow him to the bay. It is later testified that he got out of his car, stared out into the water for a minute or two, and then just drove off. On January 6th, Scott Peterson comes out to Amber. He tells her he lied about being married. He tells her he is married. He still is married. He tells her the truth. He says, this is me. My wife went missing. She's still missing. I'm not in Europe. He then tells her to protect herself from the media again, Scott makes a trip to the bay on this day where he is followed by police officers. Then on January 9th, 2003, the Modesto PD issue a news release stating the following, quote, further search today in the area of the Berkeley Marina revealed an object on the sonar device that is possibly a human body. The MPD put Scott on the round the clock surveillance at this time. Scott again makes a trip to the bay at trial it is testified that on this trip he simply circled the parking lot at the bay and then drove to bakersfield california and checked into a hotel bakersfield california is 200 miles away i do want to mention that at trial um scott's lawyer points out that all of his trips to the bay do coincide with days that it is reported the police will be searching However, January 11th, 2003, Modesto PD clarifies that the item they found was actually an anchor. Quote, dive teams found an anchor in the area where the unidentified object was located. No other object was detected. Unbeknownst to Scott, police are tapping his phone at this point. So at 12.55, Scott's mom calls to tell him that what they found was an anchor, but she reaches his voicemail and in his cell phone recording audio, a whistle sounding as a whistle of relief was heard coming from Scott's line. Here is that whistle one more time. So I don't have an exact date or point during the investigation for what I'm going to discuss next, but I want to talk about how at some point in this investigation, the Modesto Police Department made a list of 41 reasons why they thought Lacey's body was likely to be found in the bay. 
They also included like a little side section where they made 10 reasons they thought it'd be found in a lake. But um, some of the bullet points from the bay include this whistle. The fact his boat was not registered. His fishing tackle was not even meant for salt water. And he was able to describe exactly where he was fishing and that he couldn't tell investigators what he was fishing for. Recall his quote about just getting his boat into the water. Scott was said to have garnered some suspicion for going fishing in the bay as opposed to a lake as there were several a lot closer to his house than the Berkeley Marina. On January 17th, Lacey's family publicly demands that Scott tell investigators everything he knows. Family found out about Amber from investigators the night before and had confronted Scott about it. Scott denied any involvement with Amber. Then on the 20th, someone broke into the Peterson's house and gained entry. Police never revealed what, if anything, was taken. Scott was away at the time. I'm not sure at what point during the day this happened. Um, Likely when there was no media, which... From my understanding, media reporters would like arrive at the Peterson's house at like 3 a.m. to be the first one to have coverage on it right away at five in the morning. So I'm, I'm assuming some point in there, or maybe they went around the back. I don't really have a clear picture of how someone broke in or any of the details of this, but it is reported that someone broke in, but we don't know if they took anything. According to investigators on January 21st, Scott goes for a little trip. This trip includes a drive to around his warehouse location. I don't think he drives into the warehouse, but he then circles the bay. He goes around, there's like two bridges that go on that little island, whatever it's called. January 24th, Amber Fry goes public to discuss her relationship with Scott. She holds a press conference and publicly apologizes to the family of Lacey Peterson. Volunteers in the Red Lion Hotel shut down the Volunteer Center. They are absolutely outraged at Scott for lying, and they return the tip line to the police department. Scott pretty much became the most hated man in America at this point as a result of the media portrayals of his actions at this point. January 28th, 2003, Scott agrees to three media interviews. One of these was with Diane Sawyer and two were just with local reporters. Um, In this interview with Diane Sawyer, Scott says the following about his missing wife. She was, I mean is, an amazing person. This mishap began his steep downfall. Also in this interview, he claims that Lacey knew about his affair with Amber Fry and says that while she wasn't okay with it, it wasn't anything that was going to end their marriage. Um, Lacey's family is not happy with this. They adamantly deny that Lacey would let this happen. February 10th, 2003 was Lacey's due date. However, in trial testimony, we find out that her due date actually would have been the 16th of February, but February 10th was also Amber Fry's birthday. And Amber and Scott talked a lot about her birthday in the time that she was recording their conversations. In one of the transcripts, she asks him what they should do for her birthday. And he says, quote, I will take care of it. He gets her this big lot of like birthday presents. Despite the fact his wife is missing. On February 18th, 2003, the Modesto Police Department issue a warrant to again search the Peterson home on 523 Cavena Ave. They take an unknown number of items into evidence, and in their news release that day, they also state, quote, he has not been identified as a suspect nor eliminated from this investigation. Two days later, on February 20th, the police formally asked the media to leave Cavena Ave. Quote, the media satellite truck stationed in the area of the Cavena neighborhood are causing a noise disturbance for neighbors. Citizens are also reporting to police that media personnel and equipment make it difficult to drive down the street or get into their homes. 
On March 5, 2003, at 2.30 p.m., the MPD officially declared the case to be an expected homicide. At this point, the tip line has received over 8,000 tips. Then on April 14, 2003, at 12.15 p.m., the Modesto Police Department is notified by the Contra Costa Search and Rescue Team that a body had washed up at Point Isabella, which that's by Berkeley Marina. In the news release issued at 9 p.m., there is only mention of one body found, but a lot of the reports also say that a fetus was found as well. I couldn't tell for sure if both the bodies were found on the 14th. In an issue released on the 15th, it is outlined that there are two bodies, one of an adult female and that of a male baby. It was also testified in trial that two different people found the bodies and they were found in two different locations. So again, not sure if both bodies were found on the 14th or if one was found on the 15th before the release. On April 18th, 2003, it is confirmed that the bodies found were that of Lacey Peterson and her son, who would have been named Connor Peterson. It is reported that only Lacey's torso was found with khaki pants on it and a maternity bra. All of her organs were missing with the exception of her uterus. The baby's body was found, I don't want to say in better condition, but his body was found intact with the umbilical cord still attached. Also found on baby Connor's body was electrical tape stuck to his ear. Nylon tape was used to make a noose around his neck, and a large gash across his torso was found. When this information was released, Scott was staying in San Diego, which is seven and a half hours south. He had reportedly been staying here to be closer to some family. He was planning on golfing that day with his dad. I also, I also want to point out that golfing was not uncommon for Scott. Apparently, he had intentions of being a pro golfer. So as Scott is on his way to the golf course in San Diego, he sees some unmarked media vehicles following him. He calls his brother and he's like, dude, maybe I shouldn't go. The last thing the public needs is to see me golfing. His brother agrees and Scott decides to just try to lose them. He drives around for what he later claims to be about an hour or so, driving somewhat erratically to try and lose him. Ultimately, he decides to go to the golf course, and as he's pulling in, these vehicles following him, they light up, and Scott realizes that they were the police. Scott is arrested for the murder of both his wife and his son. When Scott is arrested at this golf course, he has dyed his hair, and he tried to dye his hair blonde. His natural hair color is really dark, so when he tried to dye it blonde, he got that ugly sort of reddish blonde. He also had around $15,000 in cash. He had camping gear in his car, as well as four cell phones. He was using his brother's ID, although in some places it is reported that it was his brother's passport. He's also said to have a picture of him and Lacey in the vehicle. Now to be fully transparent, there are photographs of Scott meeting with the police when his hair and beard are dyed prior to being arrested. It is also said that he was using his brother's ID at the golf course to get a discount. It is speculated that he was potentially living in his car at the time. And San Diego was not too far from the Mexican border. And it felt like the media was trying to convince the public that Scott was running from Mexico, but it's corroborated by police that he was arrested at a golf course in a red Mercedes. So I guess if I was planning on dipping to Mexico, I don't think that I would be, first of all, driving a red Mercedes. I'd take like a little black Honda Accord. And I also don't think that I would stop to golf first, but that is just me. Y'all, this is where things get pretty juicy. I dive deep into trial testimony to bring you guys new details you may not have heard before, and I'm so excited to share that with you. Unfortunately, you will have to wait for a part two. Part two of the disappearance and murder of Lacey Peterson will be available in a couple of days. In the meantime, be sure to head over to our Facebook page, check out the photos and sources for this episode, and give us a like so you can stay up to date on all future episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>